This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and welcome to Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, um, our podcast in which we live podcast the 150th anniversary of the voyage of the CSS Shenandoah around the world between 1864 and 1865. This podcast is brought to you by Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Hi, everyone. And we are joined today by our friend John Coleman, who is researching a podcast on the Hundred Years' War. Now, now we, we've talked about some ambitious podcasts over the last couple of weeks. There's, there's a chap who's podcasting the First World War. So that'll keep them going for a good four years. Uh, 200, 261 weeks, apparently. Although I believe, John, you are not, in fact, planning to do the podcast in real time. Uh, no, and it, it won't be 100 years in 100 podcasts either. But, um... Oh, so how are you going to do it? Oh, um, you haven't quite worked that out yet. I have no idea. Okay, so you know what it's not going to be. But, um, well, yeah, it, yes. Um, it's going to be more about uh, the story, the narrative. Okay, yes. Um, what I want to do is I want to trans- translate uh, the story. It's a rollicking story. It has wonderful characters. It's exciting. Um, and I want, to tra- I want to, more than get into the historical minutiae, um, I want to translate to people the... Um, the astonishing events that really brought about the end of um, feudalism and the beginning of the Renaissance. Well, um, sounds like a big topic. and we're, we're, Well, we're managing to get 61 weeks out of the, the voyage of one ship. A one-year journey. Uh, a a one-year journey. Ours will probably have slightly more whales. <laughs> and, uh, well, actually, yours would also have enormous potential for impressive false beards if it was made into a movie, because we did have a long chat in an earlier episode about the movie Gettysburg, if you've ever seen that. It's a it's a great uh, cinematic recreation of the Battle of Gettysburg, very much let down by the fiberglass beards worn by all the major actors. I, I, I think I think we're, we're almost getting a mention of those first false beards in, in every single episode um, <laughs> that we have. Now, um, uh, so... Now, um, so probably, uh, given that um, John is in research mo- mo- mode for his uh, podcast, uh, probably by the time our, our podcast is winding down, his his will be winding up, and um, and and by then uh, there'll still be First World War podcasts uh, next year, but um, Second World War and U.S. Civil War will be will be winding down. So if you if you love your historical war podcast, then uh, the Hundred Years War, and uh, when when John gets to, to launch his podcast, we will we will certainly uh, let let you know about it. And um, we've uh, given given that we've been uh, talking uh, quite a bit in recent weeks about the uh, the disciplinary disciplinary methods of uh, Mr. Mr. Whittle, the executive officer of the Shenandoah. Uh, we explained uh, to John before we went on air that um, there are no passengers on this ship. There are crew and there are prisoners. Uh, so John has, uh, without any suasion on our part or being um, hung from the thumbs from one of the stanchions that yet. we have here. Yet. Yet. Um, we're going to give it, to give it over to John to do 
The story so far. The CSS Shenandoah has rounded the Cape of Good Hope and is heading towards Australia, east across the Indian Ocean. The ship has taken prizes and looted supplies of men and stores, but they are travelling through windswept and isolated waters. The wild weather is matched by the wild passions of men. Captain Waddell and Executive Officer Whittle are feuding. Can a ship disunited stand? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, certainly um, Abraham Lincoln asked that question, yes. didn't he, about, uh, about the United States, and look where that got them. Yes, and, and, and the, the, the CSS Shenandoah is, is a, I think, a microcosm, a microcosm of the US Civil War, except it's a microcosm where the Confederacy are winning, and it's the Confederacy who are pressing uh, Union sailors into there. Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, yes, by, by late late... December of 1864, the uh, the Indian Ocean is really the only part of the world theatre where the Confederacy is winning the war. Yes, absolutely. So where are we? We're at 42 degrees, 26 minutes south. That's the longitude. And we're at 43 minutes, four, four minutes east. And we're heading east by south. We're on our way to, to Australia. Australia. To Australia. That's, and you do need to head uh, east from the... Um, Cape of Good Hope, and um, yes, we 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 started to throw away these uh, throw around these longitude and uh, latitude references because uh, last last week we got on to the, there's the Roaring Forties, the Fierce Fifties, and the Screaming Sixties, and, and I reckon after that you should probably have the Suicide Seventies, the Excruciating Eighties, and the South Pole because <laughs> the South Pole is is ninety. Um, Funny enough, when you look up Roaring Forties on a certain popular uh, Wikipedia, it says not to be confused with the Roaring Twenties. And, and I have to say, I, I get this wonderful image in my head of a, a ship of fools of flappers doing the Charleston, heading across the Roaring Forties and eventually sinking, you know, as the, as the band plays on. But um, but so we are into the Roaring Forties. Now, um, um the Cape of Good Hope is at 34, uh, 34 degrees, so it's not in the Roaring Forties. Uh, Melbourne, uh, where we live, is 37 degrees, so that's probably why Melbourne tends to be a little bit windy. Um, but um, Cape Horn uh, of South America is, in fact, um, 54 degrees. So you're, you're already in the fierce 50s when you go around the, the very tip of Chile, which... Um, which is why, uh, a bit earlier than this, in the in the age of sail, people wouldn't even go round the Horn. They'd go through the Magellan Straits, which okay. are a little bit higher up than that, okay. because Tierra del Fuego was an island. Oh, yes. And uh, that way you didn't have to quite get down so far down into the fierce 50s. So... Um, our ship is, is, is heading across the Indian Ocean. Um, I've also um, been on a, a ship across the Indian Ocean back when I was 12. Um, but that's because you go through Suez, you're going through... Was this the... um, several years before the mast or uh, was no, it a, no, a, this, a this pleasure was, uh, cruise? It wasn't a pleasure cruise. It was a passenger ship going between um, England and Australia, which I, I've mentioned in a previous episode. When we were talking about crossing the equator and the crew of the Shenandoah um, 
were shaved and then I think were made to drink of the mug of their shaving lotion, which was which was not pleasant. And there were liberal dousings of uh, salt water and yes. so on as well, yeah. Yes, and, and I said, as an old sea dog myself, I went through a similar, similar ceremony, except, except instead of being shaved because I was 12, I was given an ice cream. So uh, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's how soft and degenerate they had got by 1977 when I did the trip. So um, while, while I sailed across a, a different part of the Indian Ocean and much less roaring fortingly, it was probably a brief twenties or uh, yeah, slightly pleasant thirties. Um, it is a very big ocean, and it can get very, very rough. Um, and it is actually quite rough at the moment. And this is where we're getting in uh, in in Whittle's log. He mentions a number of times about how the, uh, the ship is decidedly very wet. Yes. What this essentially means and, and, and is... You, yes, you would think most ships do get wet, but um, on yeah, the outside. On the outside. This is, this, is, this is water coming in over the sides and then not necessarily uh, coming back off the sides but going down into the ship, which would have been very unpleasant. Uh, because, again, the, the ship had insufficient holes cut into its railings. Yes. Yes, so you, you would tend to have a deck-side swimming pool. Um, when it's shift in heavy seas. And if we go back to uh, the fact that the Shenandoah is an extreme clipper built for great speed, mm. it wasn't necessarily built for great comfort. No, no. That was very much a secondary uh, consideration. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't one of the new sports cars that they're, they're, they're building nowadays that have got you know, leather leather interiors. Soft and, rotor. A, 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 it's not a soft rotor. It, it is not a soft rotor. It is, it is a... Um, an absolute extreme performance uh, ship. So, um, and, and this is, and we'll talk about a little about this a little bit later on. This is actually where the uh, the feuding between the uh, first officer and the captain starts, and it's all about handling the ship in in this band. Handling the ship in in heavy weather. Mm. But um, before before we got get get onto that. Um, I thought um, we, we might have a bit of a discussion, Michael, because we we made a we made a visit to one of the the sites of the Shenandoah's um, uh, passage uh, last week, didn't we? We, we? we did. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with the journey because the Shenandoah. Was I, I back think in I the, think we can do foreshadowing back in the back in the in the in the Southern Ocean. But we went to Williamstown last weekend. Um, this is where the Shenandoah uh, spent some time when it came to, to Melbourne. And there in Williamstown are a few uh, reminders and leftovers of its visit. Probably the key one is one of the old original hotels. This was a this was a place. This was the dock. So there was a lot of hotels down there. Obviously, a great many hotels, and there's also a a drinking fountain for sailors who did not want to drink liquor, which. Yes, that was that was very strategically placed between the docks and the hotel. And the pubs, yes, yes. Yes, I'm not sure how successful it was, given it looks like there was about 30 or 40 pubs yeah, that yeah. they could then go to. One of these original pubs uh, has got a bit of a... The, the, the uh, old Telegraph Hotel. The old Telegraph Hotel from the time. Uh, somebody later on has painted a mural, or had painted a mural of the Shenandoah, and... <laughs> We thought we would have our photos taken in front of that, and and, and that that photo, um, artfully photoshopped, is uh, is now on our website at uh, shenandoahdownunder.com. And I'd say lose no time in going to um, our website, but given you've 
obviously managed to get our podcast off our website. You probably don't need any instructions in doing that. But that, that was... Because um, there was a plaque on the front of that saying it's the old Telegraph Hotel. Um, so presumably these murals date from, from when, it, when it was a pub. But there's... Um, a mural on one side, which has got a, a, a rather fanciful, it has to be said, description of a naval sea battle, um, looking rather more Napoleonic than, than civil war. I have to say, and that, that's, that is indeed the one we're standing in front of. There is a much better picture of the Shenandoah on the other side of the uh, former hotel, but given that was uh, painted on what would be the second story, it was a bit hard for us to stand. It was, it was a bit hard, and they've also knocked down the building next door, so we, we, we couldn't get a very... But that was a rather a rather more historical... Um, so, so there are still memories of, of the Shenandoah in Williamstown to, till, to this day. Um, the, other, the other thing that uh, happened in Williamstown is one of the cannons from the ship was presented to uh, people... In Williamstown. Now, Rob and I got a very nice photograph of us standing in front of a cannon. Yes, unfortunately, it's not that cannon. It isn't that cannon. <laughs> but, but we thought any cannon will do at a pitch. There is there is a connection. The actual cannon, I believe, is somewhere else in Victoria, and we're going to find it. I have I have my suspicions where that cannon ended up. Okay. And uh, that will be another another little trip for us to take at some times, Rob. But the cannons we stood in front of were built, uh, were put into a place called Fort Jellibrand, and that was built in the wake of the Shenandoah. All right, because Melbourne had experiences of warships suddenly turning up out of the blue. Which kind of scared everyone a bit. Yeah. And uh, as a result, Fort Jellybrand was built down at uh, Williamstown, and these very large cannon were put in there. So there is still a, uh, a connection, I would say. Oh, good. I'm glad you found a connection. I was, I was proposing to put photos of the cannons on, on our website and just, just hide that. But no, but there is a connection. <laughs> well, well done, Michael. Yeah. Later on, uh, as another reason for being so rattled, uh, the colony of Victoria started its own navy as well and uh, bought a ship called the Cerberus, which was a very powerful warship, uh, to the colony of Victoria. And this, this all stems back to... Back to the, the Shenandoah. Uh, the fright they got when the Shenandoah turned up. Um, we'll talk more about that uh, later on. We can actually even go and see the Cerberus too, Rob. Did you know that that still exists? No, no. Whereabouts is that? That's, um, that was sunk as a breakwater. Oh, right. So, uh, so we, we need to take our snorkeling. Yeah, you can see it's, it really doesn't look like much anymore, but it's still, it's still actually there okay. and uh, in the water off... Uh, off a place called Black Rock on the other side of uh, the bay in Melbourne. And, and another, another thing uh, I, I might uh, just say quickly is, is that Williamstown is still a, a military uh, port because um, Australia's helicopter carrier uh, was was in port. And, and not only a helicopter carrier, which is apparently the, the biggest ship ever bought by the Australian Navy, um, there was the, um, the the Steve Irwin, the flagship of the the Sea Shepherd, and I I hadn't known it was in town. I actually did a tour of the Steve Irwin back in um, winter when they were they were refitting and repairing, uh, but I, I didn't know it, it, it was back in town. But it was really quite. Um, so just, tell just, our, tell our, tell our listeners who may not necessarily know what is the Sea Shepherd. Okay, well the, the Sea Shepherd basically are the the closest possible modern approximation to 
the CSS Shenandoah. Although, of in course, the sense that they are pirates. They, well, uh, well, they're not technically pirates, although they they do have. Um, yes, um, I'm getting a, a wave of the the, the hand from uh, from John there. Um, they do apparently have a $2 million fine about to be levied from them in an American court because um, they were acting in piratical ways with, uh, with illegal, illegal whaling ships. But apparently um, it doesn't really matter if you take an illegal whaling ship, it's, it's, it's still illegal, which I, I think is, is wrong myself. I'm going to um, say, Rob, that they're pirates okay. well, because <laughs> yes. the front of their ship... Yes. It's a great big skull and crossbones it, it painted on it. It is not a skull and crossbones, Michael. It's a skull and a trident. And uh, seriously, if you if you're going to mistake a skull and crossbones for a skull and a trident, um, I have to say that um, the Steve Irwin, um, obviously named after Steve Irwin of Crocodile Hunter mm-hmm. fame, and uh, they named the boat after him because he was going to join them on their on their trip to the Southern Ocean to disrupt the whalers. Um, the, the year that he died, and he didn't make it because. Um, so, uh, in in his memory, they named the ship after. In his memory, they named the ship after. I, I suspect, although I don't know this, that there might also have been a reasonable donation from uh, from Steve to, to do that. But um, so so the Sea Shepherd are, in a sense, uh, following on in the tradition of what our our story is doing a hundred and fifty years ago. I, I would not be surprised. Now I know that I know that Captain Paul Watson, who's the the captain of the um, of the Sea Shepherd uh, flotilla, uh, is a, is a very big fan of um, of Captain Waddell. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, in a later episode, we might try and get some sort of. Um, uh, feedback from, uh, we, we might ring up the, the marketing officer of the Sea Shepherd and see if anybody wants to do an interview. Uh, but yes, I, I, I have my suspicions that, that Captain Watson is in fact Captain Waddell reborn and uh, you know, has, has, has a great affinity for somebody who went out there and, uh, and sunk whalers uh, across the seven seas. So it was, again, one of, one of the themes of, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned of this, of this podcast is, is how much how much stuff re- recurs over time? You know, mm-hmm. we had we had um, we had people adopting in the eighteen sixties conscious climate change policies. Uh, rain will follow the plough. So they had a theory of climate change that, unfortunately, was just deluded and um, and wrong. And as cheerfully ignored by politicians then as, and, as and, now. And, yes, yes, as cheerfully ignored by politicians um, then as now. But to to be walking around taking taking our photos of historical Williamstown and um, the, the, the 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 remnants of the the CSS Shenandoah. And, and one more thing to say about the Telegraph Hotel. Um, above on the lintel above the door, it does not say. Telegraph Hotel, it says CSS Shenandoah. So uh-huh. I, I think the owner of the Telegraph Hotel had a had a, a, a very very serious interest. And one final thing I'll say before I'll shut up and let you get on to what actually happened 150 years ago is um, the um, the helicopter carrier, uh, the uh, Australian Navy helicopter carrier, was in fact not even the only helicopter carrier in Port in Williamstown. Because when I did my tour of the Steve Irwin back in um, back in back in winter, they proudly pointed out that they have a helicopter deck on on the Steve Irwin, 
uh, which was paid for by, if memory serves, the members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wow. So uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers decided that uh, what the uh, the Steve Irwin needed was a helicopter. And, and and they do need that because that lets the helicopter go out and see whether the whalers... To go uh, whale spotting. Go, to, to go, well, not just whale spotting, but whaler spotting. And I, I actually think that... Um, just imagine, what would have Captain Waddell done if he had a helicopter? If he had, had a helicopter or, or a well-trained albatross that can fly off and... Come back and tap you on the shoulder. Um, but um, well, I was I was seriously impressed with the Steve Irwin. It looked it looked badass. Yes, I have yes. To say. I, I, I think the Australian pronunciation of badass might be slightly different to the American pronunciation. But, but we, we mean the same thing by it. But yes, and and the the skull and trident on the front does does look um, very very powerful. And the and the, the camouflage paint. On the ship too, I think. Yes, it gives it that. Um, it's like that World War One warship frisson. I yeah, thought. yes, it, it gives us a sort of black ops vibe. Um, it, it's also actually like the Shenandoah in, in in another respect, actually, because um, again, um, when we did the tour in um, July, we had this explained to us. Um, most of the ships in the flotilla, and there are three or four of them, they go deep into the Southern Ocean, um, into the Roaring Forties, maybe into the Fierce Fifties, probably not the Roaring Twenties. But they're not, they don't have, they got some reinforcements, but they are not icebreakers. So when they are dodging around the icebergs looking for those illegal whalers, they are running uh, many of the same risks that uh, Waddell in the CSS Shenandoah was taking 150 years ago. Although they, they did have a bit of a think about this. And um, so a couple of years ago, they actually bought an ex-whaler. From, from Norway. So, so one of the flotilla now is actually an ex-whaler, which, which I think is, is a very smart idea. I, I think it's, uh, it's good that no, they did that. Well, it just goes to show the whalers are not... Are not uh, they don't have a problem about making a buck any way they can. No! <laughs> can you imagine? You're, you're a whaling captain. Uh, <laughs> the, the sea shepherd comes along and offers you good hard cash, maybe sourced from the chilli peppers, maybe, maybe sourced from you two, who knows? Uh, maybe sourced from the, the estate of Steve, if they were, they say... I like your money, friend. Yeah, away we go. So um, let, let's let's go back 150 years. And Michael, we, we've got some feuding. And do we have any bad language? Uh, I couldn't find any bad language in the uh, the accounts uh, this week. But probably uh, the key thing that's come up is the fact that in heavy weather, yes. you've got to have a uh, crew that knows what they're doing, and you've uh -huh. got to have officers that know what they were doing. Yes, and it would seem that the captain decided that some of the uh, the lieutenants that were on board he didn't think were experienced enough to be manning a watch. Experienced enough or good enough? Well, that's that's what's come out, and in fact, uh, Whittle is very very unhappy because he has now had his. His own orders countermanded several times by the captain. Oh, look, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I have to interject here. We, we, we went into this last week where um, Captain Waddell came up on deck and he did not like the way that the top gallant midden, uh, mizzen, the top gallant midden would be a much different thing um, involving <laughs> yes. the newer. Uh, the top gallant mizzen had been dressed. So he gave the crew orders and he said, um, Mr. Whittle has ordered it so. And I thought, and, and when, when Whittle found this out, um, Whittle was, was very, very annoyed by this. But 
I think, I'm sorry, I, I think Whittle's just got to harden up. You know, the captain followed a formula. The, the captain mentioned his name and said, Mr. Whittle has ordered it so. And I think well, that, that, that's probably how they did it back in the old school days when, when Waddell was a young midshipman. So I think Whittle should just... Should well, just Waddell has doubled down. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Because in the middle of the night, when things are getting a bit uh, hairy, he calls on uh, Whittle to send up a master's mate who's not been warranted but just appointed by the captain for the journey okay, yes. to take over from Lef- uh, Lieutenant Chu, who he thought was not up to it. Uh, so a, a, a non-officer has been sent up to replace an officer. Yes, and also oh, someone that's been made a uh, mate by the captain on the journey. So he hasn't even properly received his warrant. So so the captain has sent up one of his own buddies to replace Yes. Buddy. And uh, Whittle says, you know, how can this happen? I mean, left, Lieutenant Chu's been appointed by the President of the Confederate States. Oh, dear. And, and the by, Senate. And by the advice and consent of the Senate. So he's really playing it hard. And uh, he, saw, he sees this as being, and, and this is the quote he uses, ruinously wrong. This is pretty strong words, given that we know Whittle doesn't swear himself and, and, no, and knocks no. people down that, that does. And uh, he said, I know that everything like an esprit de corps be destroyed by such arbitrary and unwarrantable acts of authority. I'm, I'm glad, I'm, 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 I'm hoping you said esprit de corps correctly there, because of course, given that um, John is about to translate stuff for the French, how, how is esprit de corps there? Yeah. Reasonable. Um, I expect no end of complaints about how I murder the French language. <laughs> it's a language I love and respect, and I apologise now, and I will um, just have a standing apology from the beginning to the end of my podcast. Oh, well. Uh, in oh, fact, well. I, I, I will uh, say Did, did you notice defense, John never actually said our pronunciation of esprit de corps was actually correct? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to say in my defence that Whittle actually writes it as spirit du corps, and the editors put sick afterwards. Oh, okay. Because he didn't even write it. Okay, okay, okay. So, the next day, the weather had certainly abated, but tempers hadn't. Oh, dear. Because Chu, I think, had gone back to his cabin and sat in his his hammock brooding on this. No, he was an officer, so he would have had a bed. He might And probably a sofa and a bureau. Possibly a wet one, given how, uh, how, how the weather's been. Um, and... He went and complained to the captain, and the captain told him straight out that he didn't consider him competent, and that he oh. would respect neither his person nor his commission. Waddell, Waddell is old school, isn't he? Yes. I, 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 he tells it like he sees it. Um, so this would have been deeply shocking. So Mr. Chu requested to be relieved from duty altogether... So this would actually make him a passenger. Oh, there's no passengers on this ship. Sorry. Sorry. sorry and sorry. to be able to leave from the first port, which uh, Waddell says, yes, that's fine. Now... I wonder if he actually did. No, he doesn't, because Whittle then goes to have a word to, uh, to the captain and says, do you realise that the first thing that Mr. Chu is going to do when they land... He's going st- straight to the Union Embassy. Well, no, he's going to write... He's going to write and complained to the Secretary of the Navy about his appalling treatment. And that he said, I offered to stand watch with Chu. So in other words, to like, you know, have him as my apprentice. Yes. And he is astonished when Waddell complains that, oh, you never offered to do so when I was up there helping them out. 
So this has made him even more cheesed off. Fortunately, uh, Waddell asks him if Chu will uh, withdraw his application and, and Chu says he will if he's promised the deck again, which in other words means he's he did, he allowed did. to stand to watch again. Yes, yes. And the captain, and, and I'm starting to get a very Kane mutiny vibe. Uh, out there of he is, yes. Yeah, very much so. Um, because... Uh, Whittle's writing about how the captain's saying that they were all his enemies, that he doesn't have a friend on the ship, you're all against me. But Chew is, in fact, called for and restored to the watch. And then Waddell begs Whittle to forget all about the incident. Because that's going to work. Yes. Oh, so, 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 okay, so Waddell doubles down. He, he, he shows strong autocratic ten- tendencies. Uh, and then he wimps it like a girly man. Yes, and then, just to actually sink the boot in... Uh, so I'll, I'll quote our, um, assist, our finance minister, Matthias Cormann, um, saying, a girly man is not, not a sexist um, insult. He had reasons for that. Sorry, sorry, Michael. <laughs> sorry, Michael. Uh, well, Whittle um, says, God knows I want peace for the service. So I think he agrees to that. But to sink the boot in... Yes. He tells Waddell about the chat he had with his wife oh, before he I, left. Okay, so Waddell now knows that his wife regards him as, as such an autocrat that she has to beg his officers not to fight with him. Yes. Okay. So I think that was a nice little rejoinder as he uh, as he went. I, I think I think that's putting the passive in passive aggression. Really? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, oh dear. No, okay, there's, there's no mention of strawberry. I believe strawberries and the cane mutiny was, was a big... <laughs> if, we, if we get to strawberries and also um, um, Captain Quee, definitely in the movie, remember he's playing with his balls. Oh, okay, well. yes. Yeah, well, fair this enough. is a stress ball, I'll, I'll point out, okay. uh, in okay. case anyone thinks otherwise. Did they have stress balls back in the 1950s? Definitely in the cane mutiny, yeah. Oh, okay, right, there you go. Yeah. 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 But there, there's definitely a cane mutiny vibe going on here, and if there was strawberry ice cream involved, I'd be... <laughs> I'd be really worried. And don't forget, in the Kane Mutiny, uh, it all comes to a head in a big storm as well, too. I think that would be when, when men are stretched to their limit and, uh, you know, and bits start breaking. So, um, Q, uh, Chew is, in fact, uh, returned to the watch and uh, hopefully peace comes back. The weather has certainly abated again. So we're back to... Uh, but we're back to having uh, Whittle complaining in his diary about being heartily sick of not catching another Yankee. There's too much sailing going on without a prize. And well, you are you are sailing to Australia, mate. It's a long way. Yes, and then of course he writes again about missing missing his dear Patty again. Dear Patty, so yes. I guess at some point he's going to start tricing people up again. <laughs> it seems to uh, happen. No, I believe there was one um, last thing he did, uh, which um, they, they would not be doing right now aboard uh, the, the Steve Irwin, because it's a vegan ship, the Steve Irwin. Um, but what, did, what was the last thing that... Uh, that well, we're getting doing? up to Christmas. Yes. They're going to have a, a, a great big Christmas dinner. Remember, this ship is chock full of stores. Looted stores. Looted stores. So they've... Uh, uh, Mr. Whittle has ordered uh, a big fat pig to be killed for Christmas dinner. Ah, slaughtered the pig for, for Christmas dinner. So that sets us up for um, next week. Uh, we are going to have our very special 
Christmas episode. Uh, again, we were talking to John uh, before before the program, and um, he's going to have a very special Hundred Years War uh, episode <laughs> as well. Where, uh, unlike the Christmas truce they had in the First World War, I think in the, in the Hundred Years War they they just killed harder. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, so next week will be our very special uh, Christmas episode. Um, but uh, until then, um, this has been uh, Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with a Rob Mob, uh, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. And this week, uh, John Coleman. And thank you very much for your the story so far, which was uh, beautifully read. And we'll see you all next week for the very special Christmas episode. Ahoy. Ahoy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>